Welcome to this episode of the Atlanta Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Danny Preston, who is Chief Methodologist for Digital AI. They're formerly CollabNet version one. Uh, I originally met Danny at Equifax, but our paths were similar through both Georgia Tech and Cox Enterprises. I was at Mannheim and he was at AutoTrader. Um, Danny is one of the most positive and energetic people that I know. He's been successful at the enterprise level as well as a small business owner. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about his agile journey and what he's up to now. So welcome to the podcast, Danny. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate you uh, you joining me on a, a nice rainy Tuesday. But uh, you know, I always enjoyed our conversations back when we were you know brainstorming at at uh, Equifax and trying to figure out agile transformation and best practices and all that. But I really want to kind of get a sense from you, sort of how this all began. You know, you and I both have a passion for, um, you know, new innovative ways in software development. But uh, tell me a little bit about your background and how you got started, where you grew up, um, you know, kind of where you went to school and, and maybe your, your thoughts coming out of school and what your first job looked like. Yeah, so I guess going way back, I, I was born here in Atlanta, one of the few uh, natives here. My dad got transferred around quite a bit. He was in the FBI. And so uh, I spent really between two years old and 10 years old in Pennsylvania. So that's why I don't have a deep Southern accent. Uh, but then we moved back to Atlanta in uh, 1981 when I was in third grade and have been here ever since. Okay. Um, went to Parkview High School and uh, through that, through there, I had a lot of fun at Parkview and it was a great, a great school at that time. I think it's still a great school. And um, applied to several different colleges and got into Georgia Tech. And I thought, man, that's a, that's a pretty good place to be. Um, yeah. Good value, so- in-state, all that. Yep. Yeah. So sorry to interrupt, man. So in high school, what were you thinking? Were there certain subjects you liked or um, how did you think of Georgia Tech? Was it just a close school and, and you want to stay close to home? What was the thinking? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I was really thinking that much. I, I was kind of like a lot of my friends were applying there and I thought, well, you know, that they'd probably be a pretty, pretty good place to go. Um, and so I applied to only two colleges. I applied to uh, Georgia Tech and West Point. Um, so kind of, you know, totally odd ends of the spectrum. And um, I was on the journey to West Point, mainly because I thought that'll be a free education and I can save a lot of money going there. Mm-hmm. But the more I thought about, um, you know, being in the Army for several years after graduation and not really having the freedom to explore different stuff, I'd ended up uh, going towards Georgia Tech. Um, so I didn't have a major going in. I was an undecided. Um, so that kind of tells you how much I knew about engineering at that time. <laughs> That's cool, did. Um, so coming into, uh, well, I mean, honestly, you know, West Point's a, it's a fine school. There's definitely a lot of smart people that go there. Were you in ROTC in high school or was it more just about the, the scholarship offer and then the opportunity for free education? Yeah, that was really kind of what, what was leaning me that direction. I wasn't in ROTC, um, but I, I was, you know, physically active, running cross country and, and had decent grades. And so that mm-hmm. was one on my radar and, and, you know, it's got a great reputation. So how, yeah. could, you, how could you not... Uh, give it a try if you had a chance to. So Yeah, that's great. So, so you get to Georgia Tech, undecided. Yep. So you're just taking just general um, core classes, calculus, physics, chemistry, all the all those yeah, fun topics. Mm-hmm. No clue at all what an engineer was really. And, and I had a stark awakening, my very first English class, you know, it's like day one of college and the teachers going around the room, you know, asking everybody why, why they're in, in college at Georgia Tech. And so you know, first person in the chair says, you know, I'm here to get a good job and make lots of money. Second person, I'm here to get a good job and make lots of money. Third person, here to get a good job and make lots of money. It finally came my turn. And I was like, you know, I really want to expand my knowledge base, get a better sense of the world and what's going on and emerge a better educated contributor in society. And everybody just kind of laughed at me like I was being sarcastic. I was like, and get a good job and make money. And they're like, yeah, okay, good. All right, you're one of us. So so I've, I've never felt like I totally fit in there, which maybe kind of a common story at tech, but it was, a, uh, it was definitely challenging those first two years, just trying to keep up and, and, uh, blend in and just, you know, figure out where my, where my place was. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you intern, uh, in between years or, uh, tell me a little bit about how you wound up with, cause you were an IE, is that right? I was. Yeah. So I, yeah. I did not do much right in that regard. Like I was just trying to keep my head down and and stay in school. My first quarter at Georgia Tech, I actually made it into the Square Root Club, uh, which is this prestigious club where the square root of your GPA is greater than your GPA. Um, that's, that's a bad place to be for those of you that aren't good at math. Um, you don't want to bring that report card home at Christmas time after first quarter. But, uh, but I, was, I really struggled, 
Paul. My thought was, where I, as I was kind of going through, I really was leaning towards being a civil engineer and maybe working in third world countries to try to make the infrastructure better, um, doing something along those lines. And, and so I went through that and I was undecided trying to get into the CE school. And I took intro to civil engineering and, um, and ended up, I was pulling my GPA up all through, you know, basically my first two years. That first quarter, I, I did pretty bad. So I was behind the ball there. And I went at the end of my second year, I had to declare a major, like you couldn't register for classes unless you declare a major at some point. And so I had to declare a major and it was the last day before registration to declare a major. So of course, like a typical college sophomore, I'm waiting until the very last minute. Mm-hmm. And I went to the CE school and they said, Hey, you know, uh, you want, so you want to be a, a CE here? All right, you got to have a minimum of a two, four GPA. And at that point in time, I only had a two, two. And they were like, Hey, sorry, you got to have a two, four, you know, come back and try again later. I was like, well, I can't, I can't even register for classes until I declare a major, like surely two tenths of a point aren't going to like separate us from, from my destiny. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, it's going to do it this quarter, come back and try again. So I was, I was really despondent kind of walking across campus. It was about four thirty, and everything was going to close at five o'clock and, and I was going to be like not able to register for classes. And so I saw a friend of mine and I, and I said, Jason, you know, man, what's, what's your major? I got to clear a major today. And he said, well, I'm industrial engineering. I was like, what, what do they do? Like, what's an industrial engineer all about? He's like, well, they're, they're usually the bosses of other engineers and they make more money than other engineers. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, that sounds pretty cool. Um, let me give that a go. So I was, I was determined between either that or international affairs. And I was kind of leaning towards international affairs. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I couldn't find the building. Like, I mean, I, I don't know, like at that time in the mid nineties, international affairs was actually off campus. I had no clue, um, but they were across the street. And so I'm looking, looking, looking and walking around campus, couldn't find it, but I knew where the IE place was. The management building's pretty big. And so I walked in and I was like, you know, guys, you know, I want to declare a major. Uh, I'd like to be an IE. And they were like, well, you know, what's your GPA? And I was like, oh, that's a two, two. And they said, Hey, you're in luck. Uh, you got to have a two, one or better to be one of us. And so I was like, Hey, sign me up. Here we go. And so I, I actually became an IE major, not having a clue what IE was about. Um, but it was one of those providential things. And when you, you know, when I look back on life, like there's so many random acts that kind of end up putting you in the place where you are. But that was, the, that was the best place I could be on Georgia Tech campus. Once I got into the classes, my GPA went from struggling to dean's list. It's like all of a sudden everything clicked and I knew I was in the right place. It was kind of a weird a weird journey how I got there. I wouldn't recommend it to any of my kids. Like that's not how you choose a major in college, but it worked out for me. It was kind of a, kind of a crazy deal. Yeah, no, it's honestly, it sounds very similar to, to my, um, my story. I started out at tech and I had not taken a calculus class in high school. So you think about your freshman year and your first semester, it was quarters at the time I was there. And uh, you know, the professors and the TAs, they're not too um, lenient or, have any empathy for students that are struggling. And uh, so, yeah, my first semester, my first quarter was brutal. And uh, I went from, you know, the path from, you know, double E to IE. And, you know, I was still struggling. I was in Navy ROTC and wasn't because I was thinking the same thing. You know, if I go out uh, through uh, Navy ROTC, I've got a scholarship, it can pay for school or at least help a certain amount. And then, you know, after my freshman year, I just, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do, but I did take a, a finance class that I liked and I thought, okay, maybe there's something to this. And so I wound up in the, in the business school and management degree and um, same thing, man, it was Dean's list from there. And it just, you know, things just kind of clicked for me. So it was definitely, definitely the right move, but see, you're funny because there, there are certain periods in your time, you know, definitely mile markers that you may not plan for, but they really do impact the rest of your life. And if you're open and you're, uh, attuned to what may happen, um, it could be life-changing for you. Yeah, you know, I, I, one of the things I often use when I'm talking with companies about changing or changing your process, making anything better, is it's, it's way easier to course correct when you're in motion. You know, like if you think through, a, if we had a big, you know, school bus sitting in a parking lot and it was sitting there dead still and park, to get it to turn 90 degrees or 180 degrees would be very difficult. You'd have to have a big train, a crane and all kinds of craziness to turn it around. But if it's moving, if it's in motion, you can do it with one finger, you know, just by steering the steering wheel. And so I think had I set, you know, my senior year and, and just said, I'm going to wait to apply anywhere before I know exactly what I want to do, mm-hmm. that probably would have been a mistake. Like at some point you got to just make a decision and, and realize, hey, we'll figure it out when we get there. 
and you can always course correct. There's, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to come to a place where there's just a complete dead end. And yep. so, um, yeah, so that it worked out for me. Um, again, I don't think I ever could have plotted that course because I, I didn't even know. I mean, shoot, I thought my freshman year, I thought a civil engineer was the kind of engineer that waves at you when they're driving the train across the tracks, you know, I, I didn't know. <laughs> and so, um, but as you get in, you kind of figured out and, and ended up being a pretty, uh, pretty good education. I totally loved industrial engineering. I, I, there were a few classes, the statistics stuff I didn't really care for, but all the process stuff, main machine systems, all that. I just really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, couldn't get enough of it. So yeah, that was an interesting, interesting way to get there. That's great, man. So, so coming out of tech, um, you know, what were you thinking is your next step? Yeah, mainly I was just interested in getting a job. Um, I didn't really have a clear thing. I, I never co-opt through college, which was a terrible mistake. Um, I just, you know, I went, I went there summer breaks. I'd work, uh, you know, part-time at a bicycle shop, stuff like that. And so, um, I was really like, man, I, I thought it might be cool to work doing some man machine systems, some design stuff. I enjoy that. Um, but also was just open to, to any job. So I was doing interviews and my senior design uh, project was over at Piedmont uh, in the emergency room. We were doing some process flow work there. And mm -hmm. so I had that little bit on my super thin resume at the time and um, got a job for Cerner. They're a, a healthcare software firm, mainly because I had Georgia Tech on my resume and I had Piedmont Hospital on my resume. Mm -hmm. um, so that started into uh, implementing their software and, and did that traveling for a couple of years um, right out of college. So that was an interesting way to cut, cut your teeth on what consulting is all about. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, it's, there's different ways to get into consulting. There's different types of consulting too. So yeah, that's great. So you got a, a pretty good, pretty good start. Um, certainly learning a lot because you're exposed to probably a lot of different things in the software industry and, and that and software development in that industry, right? Yeah, there were things I really loved about it. Um, so I was working at a variety of different hospitals. It was fun to get in there. And I always enjoy getting in situations where I'm in over my head a little bit and I have to think on my feet. Um, and so there's plenty of that to, to go around. Um, I, you know, I was brand new in my career. So certainly everybody around me was more experienced in their career than I was. So it was fun to get in there and, and become competent um, and then even earn their respect as things went on. Um, but the traveling was tough. And I think that's one part. I love consulting, but I hate traveling. So I had that weird dichotomy uh, where typically back then there was no remote work. Like this was all before Zoom and video conferencing and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so it was Monday morning, every, you know, Hartsfield Jackson, or it was just called Hartsfield back then. Um, but every Monday morning was airport and I'd fly back on Thursday evening. And then Friday was working from the office in Atlanta, Saturday, Sunday weekend. And then uh, back on the road again. So that lifestyle was tough right out of college where you're trying to still maintain a social life and uh, hang yeah. out with friends and that kind of thing. When you're on the road all the time, it was really tough. So two years of that, and I realized I just needed to get off the road for a bit. So what, uh, what were you thinking of doing next? Yeah, well, all through that time, I had, through college, I, I really fell in love with music and so all through that time, I was playing, playing music in bands and uh, my local church. And so as I started to get just really burned out after two years on the road, I was talking uh, with some, some friends at church. And actually, my, uh, my future wife was like, hey, we could really use uh, a worship leader, a college pastor. Uh, would you consider coming and doing that at the church for, for a while? And so I talked to them about it. And so I actually went like, again, like complete plot twist uh, from consulting, something that I really uh, enjoyed in that respect, to full-time uh, pastor slash worship leader at a big church here in Atlanta. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was my parents were scratching their head on that one, uh, for sure. <laughs> that definitely was a pivot. So, uh, so what, um, what instrument did you play? So I was, I, I can play most instruments that you'd have in your typical band, but uh, for that particular role, I was mainly singing and playing guitar, usually electric guitar. Okay. Um, and that was a blast. I did that for probably five years um, and just had a blast with it. It was a lot of fun. I think as far as my career goes, that particular uh, career, it was the best of times and worst of times. Like your best days, there's nothing, nothing like it. But then your worst days, there's also, I haven't had days as bad as those worst days either. So it was kind of that yeah. experience of a roller coaster. Uh, but it was an interesting place. And it, it taught me a lot. In that world, I was working all with volunteers. So if I made somebody mad, um, they just left, you know, like they didn't, they, they didn't have a paycheck. They didn't have any kind of, uh, 
you know, any kind of thing compelling them to be there other than vision and intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. And so I really had to lean hard as I built a volunteer team, especially in the, in the college ministry there. We had about 50 volunteers, um, all of which I had to recruit and train and all that kind of good stuff. And, um, and so I realized, man, I've, I've really got to like care for these people. Like that's my number one motivation and then equip them and help, help them become intrinsically motivated, do what, what they're doing if I'm going to ever maintain them as volunteers. And so after um, several years of doing that, I, I ended up um, leaving the mega church to go plant a church down in Little Five Points and had a great time with that, but I was just not a great fundraiser. So I knew we were like running out of money and it became clear to me that I was going to have to go back into the regular uh, consulting world um, that, I, that I'd come from just to, to make mortgage payments and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when I got my next consulting job, I had had so many years of, of really like caring for the people I work with and intrinsically motivate them, that getting stuff done was really, really easy. Um, like I was, I was able to kind of move up the ranks pretty quick at, in the management side of things, um, just because I was able to get people focused on a common goal and execute that goal without a lot of hassle. Like we were able to kind of motivate them that way. They become intrinsically motivated and at a, at a job, you've got the benefit of they also get paid to be there. Um, and so that was a, I think it was a good crucible for me in those mm-hmm. years in, in nonprofit world um, to prepare me later for, for where I was going to be in my thirties. And probably not a whole lot of foresight to say, oh, okay, if I, if I'm able to be successful in this volunteering, you know, um, you know, philanthropic world, then I, I can probably leverage this when I go back to consulting, right? It was just more like, Hey, this is what's in front of me. I'm gonna try and do the best I can. And it, in hindsight, it gave you some additional skills that maybe you didn't have before. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was not like proactively thinking, oh, man, let me go learn how to motivate a workforce intrinsically. But yeah. that was kind of an output there. I was really yeah. thinking through in my in my mind, there were several careers I was interested in just throughout my life. And I thought when I had that opportunity, I think I was about 25 uh, when I when I had the opportunity to come off the road and go to work at the church. And so when that came up, I um, I thought, well, shoot, you know, when am I going to get the opportunity again? And I can, I can jump back into consulting later. Let me just give this a try. So it was, it was a chance just to do something a little different and, um, and had a lot of fun doing it. That's cool. That, I mean, it's definitely a unique path for sure. That's amazing. So back into, into consulting, um, tell me where that led to. Yeah. So the, the one downside of the adventure in the nonprofit world was that my resume was really stagnant. And when I, so I was in that world for a total of about seven years. So right up to about when I was uh, 32 ish. And, um, and so when I came back into the work world, I was really starting from scratch. Like I didn't have a great network in, in a consulting and all that. So I actually went to a Georgia tech job fair. Um, they had some for alumni Mm-hmm. And that was where I met the uh, consulting company. They were doing supply chain consulting. I had an IE degree um, and really hit it off with the guys at the booth. That, that led to more interviews and ultimately a job offer. But the problem was it was back on the road. Like I, I had lost that seven years of climbing the corporate ladder. So as yeah. I came back in, compared to my peers, I was 33 and you know, they, were, they were giving me the, the responsibilities that somebody maybe 27 would have had or 26 would have had. Um, so I was really having to come back in and prove myself starting – uh, a little bit lower than I would have certainly had, had I stayed in that world. Um, but it was back on the road. I did that uh, for three years and really learned a lot in that process. Um, but it was still the classic. You got to be on site, out of town, typically um, travel gig. So that was, I knew that was just was not the life for me. It wasn't going to be sustainable, but it was what I needed to do at that time to get my career back energized. Yeah. Yeah. So after three years, you were able to get off the road. What, uh, what prompted you to do that? Well, I, I, knew that the, uh, I knew the road lifestyle wasn't life for me. Like I knew the people at the hotel desk better than I knew what was going on in my kids' lives. Um, <laughs> so it wouldn't take you too many of those, those times to, uh, to like yeah. you know, the cats in the cradle song and start to rethink what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was spending a lot of those lonely nights in the hotel just applying for jobs, trying to bone up on my career and, and figure out where the next step would be. And uh, found a job over at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta doing project management. And so at that, at that time, while I was in the hotel so much through that consulting job, I was really doing a lot of personal assessment, just kind of thinking through what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And, and Paul, one of the things that had occurred to me in life at that point is that the most interesting people 
weren't necessarily the most well-balanced. You know, like if you, if you think about who's really making ripples in the world, it's not like these super well-balanced people that have shored up all their weaknesses. It's more people that lean into their strengths and just find other, other folks to deal with their weaknesses. Yeah. And so um, as I was doing that, doing a lot of personal assessment, asking previous people I worked with, friends and family, the thing that, that I was really good at was getting people motivated towards a common goal and executing that goal. It's a, kind of a vague statement, but that's, that's, I could kind of do that in a variety of different contexts. And, um, and so as I was looking for careers that fit that, project management was one that I thought, well, yeah, that's all, that's all they do. Like you get people motivated towards a goal and you, you get the goal done, you do the project. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go into that career, I want to go all in. Like I want to, you know, forget the, forget the weaknesses and let me just lean into my strengths. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just go, I want to be the best project manager there is. And so an opportunity came up at Children's Healthcare Atlanta to take a project management job there. And I got, got that role, it put me back home, which was great. And, um, and I just leaned hard into that. I wanted to get every certification that I could, take on every project that I could. I just, I just went deep into that. So uh, with a very short amount of time, got my PMP certification and I was managing probably seven projects at once, like a, a load that was equal to or greater than most of my peers. And, um, and really was just trying to learn as much as I could about it, get as many learning cycles as I could. And so that was kind of what got me off the road and into uh, delivery and, and getting organizations better poised to deliver on their goals. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's, that's insightful that, you know, not only are you just, you're off the road, but now you want to excel in what you're doing now, something new. You probably had a little bit of, um, you know, kind of a fresh start, if you will, to sort of, hey, this is something new. Uh, let me figure out exactly what's involved in this and, and how I can be the best person I can, right? Yeah, and I think it was a thread that made a lot of sense as I looked back. Like in my first job out of college doing the implementations, that was exactly it. Like, hey, we want to implement this cool electronic medical record. Let's, you know, let's figure out how we can each contribute to that goal and off we go. I'll, I'll help, help you guide you along the way. The pastoring thing was that exact same thing. You know, hey, we want to make the community a better place to, to live. You know, here's some ways we can do that. Let's get everybody figuring out what their niche is and, and off we go. And then the supply chain consulting was very much that like, hey, we want to get the warehouse running smoother. Um, here's how we can all contribute to that goal. Let's, let's get together and do it. And so as I got into project management, I realized it really wasn't that hard. I had never had that title before, but it was, I had been doing it. You're already that. doing it, right? Yeah. 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 So, so that uh, was interesting. So I, I was doing that for a couple of years. Uh, I was, I think, totally at Children's for three years. But two years into it, I realized that it, I was, it felt like I was uh, doing Groundhog Day, you know, that, that uh, old movie. Yeah. And every project kind of felt the same where, you started out and the sky's the limit. You're in this big planning phase. You know, it's great. You know, this, is, this is the time when you're working normal hours and, and able to get home, you know, in time to exercise before dinner. And then you get into more of a development phase where things are actually getting built out and you start to hit some bumps and bruises. And then you get in a testing phase and you realize a lot of those assumptions you made early on were, were wrong. And at that point, you're making some hard decisions of, do we keep all the scope and push the go live date or do we keep yeah. the go live date and jettison scope and your hair's on fire those last eight weeks, eight to 12 weeks. And, yep. um, and it was like that over and over and over. I, I, early on, I just thought, well, I just got a bad team. They couldn't estimate good. If I get a better team, I could, I could do it with less drama. But as I went through, I realized like it didn't matter the team. It was really the system was broke. So I was, I was kind of scratching my head, really trying to think, how do I make this better? Because we don't need to relive this every single project that we do. And I had a, a tester guy that had come in from West Coast, uh, California. He'd come join the team. And he was like, hey, have you ever heard of Agile? You know, you might, you might want to consider it for one of these uh, things that you're delivering. And so that was right around 2009. Um, and I had, I had never heard of Agile before, but I'd started to research it. And again, I wanted to be the best project manager that, that was ever there. So I thought, well, shoot, let me go get a Scrum certification or Agile certification and, um, and see what this whole thing's about. And so I went in, got my CSM uh, certification. And, and it's like, Paul, it was another one of those moments, kind of like almost becoming an IE where everything finally made sense. All that work I'd done in supply chain, lean process improvement, um, all the Kaizen events, all that started, I, I just, you know, it's like, why was this not completely obvious? I should be doing this in software development. You know, so yeah. all those core principles made perfect sense there. And so 
those worlds just collided in a beautiful way. And it's like, you know, you could almost see the matrix for the, for the first time, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, once, once you are exposed to, you know, something radically different from what tradition typically driving, you realize the process is just broken. You know, it doesn't matter how good you are. Everyone's human estimations and scope and customer demands all change and you can't necessarily control those. So why fight that? Why try to work harder to get that? I mean, that's what, you know, agile about iterative development and, you know, getting things smaller. So tell me a little bit about your experience coming into agile. Cause I, I know a lot of folks are fascinated about how that works and why is it different and how is it successful? So tell me about your, your experience with it. Yeah. So I had, I had really been implementing those principles in, you know, value stream optimization in, in, um, manufacturing plants, distribution centers for years prior to that. And that, you know, my first consulting gig after the nonprofit, that's what I did. I was on the road in those places helping optimize that. So getting, you know, small experiments, helping improve quality, you know, pushing that left, um, all those things, you know, Kanban is key part of all that stuff. And so bringing that over to software development, it was like putting your hand in your glove. It's like, oh, I, you know, I can actually use my brain and all the stuff that worked over there and bring it over here. Um, so it wasn't that big of a jump for me. It was more of like coming into something I already knew. Mm-hmm. But the people around me, it wasn't necessarily that way. Like for them, I was speaking a whole different language. And, and you know, that, that may work over there, but it's not for over here. And so I, I had to, to really just figure out that at that point in my career at Children's, I was like, well, let's just figure out something small we could do iteratively and get fast feedback cycles. And, and we'll take something that's, I mean, really the, the key thing you're doing in any kind of a agile execution is you're taking unknown stuff and you're making it known in some way or other. Like you have a hypothesis, there's something you think's true and you're going to test it out and see if it is true. And so um, we would do that as part of our big waterfall projects. I'd just say, hey, you know, what if we took and we, you know, develop all these chemo protocols or whatever it is, we'll do those iteratively and we'll batch it in small chunks and have, you know, one sprint basically equal to one week and we'll get some feedback on how that went, how it looks in the tool. Is it usable? Not get some doctors, nurses to look at it and then we'll do the next one and just had really good success with that. But I could never convince the leadership just to completely to, to shift gears and let's do the whole thing in an agile way. So as I, as I started to dig into that world, I'd almost just kind of drank the Kool-Aid and I couldn't go back to straight up waterfall, but I knew I, I wanted to stay in that, you know, helping companies deliver, scope you know big chunks of, of stuff and and um and so i started to look for my next role and i was looking for something that i could actually get in and and go deep with the agile principles and and prove that out get some experience there yeah that's um that's amazing and i think everybody sort of experiences that that uh aha moment you know with agile and i think it is um you know you touched on it a little bit but i mean some people just don't get it and so you know, you have to sort of demonstrate the benefits of it before people start to really understand a little bit more about how that's going to work. So um, tell me a little bit about how you've had to deal with some of the culture changes and some of the leadership changes as you've gone through some of your agile experiences. Yeah, well, I think the, uh, the um, quote that I always open up my classes with is in order to change, you have to change. And, and there's that uh, classic old, old quote about how you're, you're not really going to change until the pain of staying the same is, uh, greater than the pain of change. But what, yeah. what I usually do, I think there's some people that are just threatened by anything uh, that's different than their normal day to day. And different people have different propensities for how much they can change. And there's so many variables in that, you know, it just depends a lot on what's going on in your whole life. There's seasons when it's easier to change than others in, in people's lives. So you never know where you're hitting people at. But what I always try to do is tie it to a goal. So hey, guys, do we want to, you know, fill in the blank, deliver more frequently? Do we want to actually deliver this thing on time or be more predictable? Or do we want to stop working nights and weekends, you know, in the, in the final stretches of work that we're doing and, and get out of that life? Like, what about a, a sustainable lifestyle? Mm-hmm. But organizations typically have those goals. A lot of times they, they kind of revolve around, I want better transparency, like just, you know, understand what all is in, in flight better predictability, like we, we want to better, better, better meet our timelines or, or when we say we're going to do stuff, we actually get it done then. Or better prioritization, you know, we, we know we're spread too thin. Let's, let's actually bubble up and have good discussions about what we need to do. Or just better cycle times in general. We want to, we want to get stuff done in, in a shorter, more, more lean fashion or more efficient fashion. And so typically I'll work with leadership management or even people that are on the team to clearly define those goals 
And then everything I do maps back to that goal. So as weird as it sounds as chief methodologist, I very rarely encourage people to do agile and, and certainly never for agile sake, like, Hey, just cause everyone's doing it doesn't mean you should. Mm-hmm. But what I always do is I say, Hey, you know, let's talk about your goals. Let's get clear on that. And then we'll back in and agree on solutions to get you those goals. And Oh, by the way, a lot of those goals are met by better agile practices. And so I kind of back into it that way. We will kind of establish some key goals and then I'll recommend ways to get there. And then once we get an agreement on that, we can start executing. Did, um, did you kind of cut your teeth on that at, at CHOA or was that sort of an evolution as you went into say Autotrader or Equifax to sort of, you know, validate some of those things that, that uh, worked best? Yeah. So Autotrader, that was my next move after CHOA. And I really went there, just kind of pick up that story a bit and then back into that question. But as, at Autotrader, I went there um, really because I wanted a place where I could, could execute in an agile fashion. And while there was a big resistance in healthcare at the time, like, hey, we're healthcare, we're different, you know, even though it's software, there's, there's regulatory things that make us do water, you know, whatever, there's reasons you can't do it. Autotrader wasn't that way. Like, you know, we're, we're a .com, we can push code to production when we want to. Um, and so all those, all those constraints that mentally were there at Children's, I don't think they were real constraints, but they were mental constraints. So I guess they might as well have been real. Um, but those weren't there at, at Autotrader. So I came in there to really help. Um, part of the organization was Waterfall. Part of the organization was Agile. They were both trying to deliver work together. So I came in as the guy that speaks both languages and tried to, to drive better uh, practices through that. And ultimately, it was through that time that we, we really, you know, and that one, part of the group working Agile was working so much more efficiently, had better uh, predictability, better transparency, you know, almost every metric um, that it was, it was pretty clear to make a good case for why, why we should transition more of the work over there to Agile. So I was part of the delivery organization then. I wasn't really doing the Agile Transformation Auto Trader, but kind of from the bottom up was helping justify why it should move that way and helping to build a, uh, a good argument that leadership could then take and say, hey, we want to become more of an Agile org. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because I know that they had, you know, they were moving from, you know, paper publishing into the online world. And at the time, it was pretty revolutionary. So I do remember, you know, seeing a little bit of that culture and sort of what that shift looked like. So yeah, it was pretty radical. Yeah, yeah, it was fun to be a part of. And so in that journey, I was, um, I'd been there for about a year, and Children's called back and said, hey, we really want you to come. We've got this key uh, initiative we're doing, and you're the guy that can run this. Like, you've, you've got highly recommended, what would it take to get you here as a contractor for a year, year and a half to do this work? And, um, and so I had never even thought about owning my own business. And, um, and, you know, when they said, what would it take to get you here? Like, well, you know, what's your dollar per hour rate? I, I threw something out to them really, really high that I thought, well, that'll end the conversation. And I'll, you know, off I'll go. I'll be back to my job at Autotrader. And, uh, and I was shocked, but they, they said, that sounds great. When can you start? And so, um, so I immediately, you know, went through and, and stood up my own business um, and part of the preconditions there, having been a part of so many of those uh, EMR projects, I had some preconditions. Well, one, that we would do it iteratively in an agile fashion. And then two, I'd have access to the leadership eight hours a week um, to make sure that they were clued in with what we were doing. It was, it was on their radar. It was a major priority for them. That's smart. And so, yeah, yeah. But I thought I have nothing to lose, right? I mean, I've got a great job at Autotrader. I'm not, you know, angry, mad, or sulking. And so, you know, if, if you want to recruit me over there, here's, I, I, had, I had more than negotiation uh, power in that discussion. And so, so they accepted it and said, let's, let's do it. So that was my first EMR implementing that in an agile fashion. And man, the results were amazing. It went much, much better, um, way more predictable. Once it was in production, it was much more accepted because we had had, you know, demos and trials all, all through the development process. And so, um, so it was startling difference, really, really solid uh, difference there. That's awesome, and, man. Yeah, and that, that was really where I started to get into like, hey, if I'm going to actually be able to implement this, I need to get leadership's ear and we need to tie to clear goals. And so their goal was, you know, we want this done by October of whatever it was, 2011. And I was like, well, to get there, we need to make sure, you know, we've got clear visibility and how we're going all the way, you know, burn down charts, the whole, the whole shoot match. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they accepted it because they they knew i could lead it and and we had great results working together as a team there on that one very cool so how long were you um were you working for cho as a contractor 
so that was about one year. I think it was a year to the day. And, um, and so everything wrapped up just like it should wrap up. It was a great, a great finish. And, um, and so it was around that time that uh, my friends over at Auto Trader called back and said, hey, would you consider uh, being a contractor with us and helping to deliver some of our work in an agile fashion as they were, they were transitioning part of that group and needed someone with some experience in that space. And so, um, so I went back to Auto Trader as a contractor, um, just kind of under my same single shingle label there, uh, life mm-hmm. consulting, and, um, and worked with them for about a year on that one. And um, had a lot of fun doing that. It's a great company to work for. And, uh, and then it was right around that time. I thought, you know, I need to, I need to like settle down. I'm, I'm, I want to move closer to work. So I, I want to get out of being a contractor. Like I want to reduce my commute, better quality of life. Um, so I, I wouldn't mind being an employee somewhere. And a friend of mine who had been at auto trader had recommended I come over to uh, Equifax and help them out with some of their uh, agile work as well. And, and delivering some of their key initiatives in an agile fashion. Yeah. And so I actually started Equifax as a contractor. And then um, while I was there, made some connections, was doing good work, and they offered me a job as, a, as their agile, agile transformation guy um, through that. And so I became an employee at Equifax after being a contractor there. Gotcha. And that's, that's when you and I worked together. And I know it was a pretty big undertaking. You know, there were lots of departments that sort of did their own thing. And so trying to, you know, get them all collectively moving in the same direction was a little, little challenging. So I know that you had some success with one project and then, you know, kind of built that into the next, you know, so it's sort of project by project or individual IT leader by IT leader to sort of, you know, knock down those barriers and get them all working in that agile world. Yeah, my philosophy at that time was like, start somewhere and go everywhere. Because Equifax Mm -hmm. is a a pretty big world. And I think at that time, I might have been the only agile coach you know, yeah. where that was like actually my, my primary focus. Um, there yeah. were other people that certainly had that expertise, but they were splitting their time as a developer or some, you know, some other role or manager. Um, and so I think I was the only full-time agile coach at that time. And, uh, and so that's a big, a big place to go. So I, I wanted an early win. Um, and we got that uh, working with the commercial team. And then... Um, and then that started to get a backlog for people wanting some help. And I was at that point, I was able, once I got the backlog big enough, I could pick and choose people that were really serious and really wanted to go down the journey and not spend as much time with those that just want to dabble in it and, um, and, and play with it. So the, the idea is start somewhere, go everywhere and, and keep working with the people that want to work with you the most. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so after Equifax, uh, tell me about your next step. Yeah. So, um, Coming out of that, I went back into my own single shingle. So I had kind of worked my way through the ranks at Equifax and um, had, had got to where I was reporting fairly high in the organization. Um, and it made a lot of sense to drive Agile out of that seat. Um, but once, the, once that breach happened, which I'm sure you guys all mm-hmm. will remember, um, things got really uh, just tough to, to navigate and change. It just wasn't, a, like I said, there's seasons in life when it's good to change and and there's other seasons when you just need to lock it down and say, hey, we, we just got to execute. So post-breach, there was all really execution mode. There wasn't a lot of, um, hey, let's, let's go change this group or transform this group. And so um, I really just enjoy that. That's what I need to do to kind of keep myself motivated every day. Doing the same thing and managing a, a steady state process just isn't my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I was, I was kind of hungry to get back into helping organizations change and and um, jumped back into consulting and, uh, and doing that. So actually I, I worked for uh, Cox or actually Mannheim for a little bit after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just juggling a handful of different clients. So Mannheim was one of those. I uh, also got to working with Wahoo Fitness. They're a, a brand that does a lot of equipment around cycling or running uh, triathlons, um, helping endurance athletes in that. And I've had a blast working with those guys. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was doing that single shingle and, and enjoying that. But um, also there's just kind of always with, with family and all that, there's that, especially when you're a small company, there's always that danger of like, what happens if my contracts wrap up and, and I, you know, I have to find a new one. It's six weeks, eight weeks of downtime, those kind of things. So that was always a a, um, tough thing to balance. And so through that, I did that for about a year and a half, just single shingle again. And then uh, some friends of mine over at CloudNet version one now called digital.ai uh, called me up and said, hey, would you consider bringing your skill set to, to our 
company and help and helping our customers um, do the transformations they need um, in that role. So that started some some conversations about what that role should look like and all all that kind of stuff. And that's really where I got to to where I'm at today. Um, so in that one, again, I, I had most of the negotiation power because I, I was pretty happy doing my own work. It wasn't like I had to, to leave that. Um, I had a decent book of business. And so I was able to really use that to talk about what role I really wanted to fill and how I wanted that to look. And so in my current role, I'm working a little bit helping with the sales team, uh, talk with customers, helping them overcome their problems, understand that. Um, I also do some billable work where I'm actually consulting with companies, helping them in their transformations. Um, and then I'd get to do thought leadership, working with the marketing group, webinars, uh, conference talks, blogs, things like that. And, um, and then I'm also getting to help develop a community around that of practitioners. And so that's enough variety to really keep me interested and keep me engaged. It's a lot of fun uh, getting to go between those different roles. And so all that kind of messed together. We came up with the title of chief methodologist to describe that, really helping people with their ways of working in a variety of different contexts. And so been there for a little bit over a year now. Well, it sounds like, you know, what you described is what your responsibilities are. I mean, that is kind of what you've enjoyed doing with all your different stops, right? So it's really kind of a, a nice collection of all the things that, you know, you mentioned earlier about your strengths, what you like to do, um, what's worked well, what's enjoyable. And so it sounds like a really good fit for you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I think um, it's a good place to be at this season in life. I think where I want to go is starting to pass that knowledge on to the next group of leaders that are going to take that and and uh, be the warriors of tomorrow. And so I'm always looking for opportunities to begin to scale that and take people in their wing, teach them what I'm doing and, and help them to, to grow that skill set themselves. And so that community side of it is a place I can do that. Um, and, and I think that'll be probably the next chapter of my life is really getting in and passing on those skills um, to the next generation. That's cool. So working with some of the younger folks, are they, I would imagine they're more well-versed in what agile software development is and some of the things around Kanban and not having to sort of learn, you know, on the fly, but they, maybe they're used to in school working with small teams. Is that, is that a true statement or is it still kind of mixed? Yeah, absolutely true. I remember in like 2013, I was 2011, 2012, 2013, I was always arguing, you know, one side of the chart was here's waterfall. The other side was here's agile and here's why agile is better than waterfall and, you know, doing all those things. And shoot, Paul, we probably did a couple of those charts when we were at Equifax together as well. Like in waterfall, you did this and here's why it was negative. Or here's what the outcome always was in agile. Yep. You did this, and Here's why it would be better. I haven't had one of those waterfall agile conversations in two years. I got, I, I, <laughs> It's almost doesn't even come up. And I remember the first time I was teaching a new scrum master in 2015, that role. And, and I was always talking about, you know, now you might be used to waterfall, you know, this, but this is agile. Here's the, here's the way you do it. And she looked at me and she said, what are you talking about? I've never heard of waterfall. Why would, why would anyone do it that way? Like this is, you know, iterative is the only way you, you would go. What's, I don't even understand this other way. And so now today, I, I very rarely have a waterfall versus agile conversation. And most people don't, most of the younger people for sure don't even know what waterfall is other than it's a bad word that, you know, isn't supposed to. to yeah, unless they the intern with a kind of an older company that's still going through transformation, you know, a lot of the newer companies, certainly the startups and the dot-coms of the world have never really had to deal with legacy systems or, you know, older processes or, you know, top-down control, command and control type of uh, management, or certainly, you know, budget exercises that, you know, follow that procedure. So, yeah, that's cool. That's, that's a reassuring for sure. Yeah. Now, I will say there are plenty of places that, I, that have deep entrenched waterfall mindsets and the resistance to Agile, but it's not software development. Like in, in an organization, I think business agility is really the next big frontier for Agile um, and expanding the mindset, the culture, the practices outside of your typical software development one. So while I'm working, uh, you know, the one company, their hardware group is pretty dug into a waterfall mentality and they're having a hard time. It reminds me of the software conversations I was having in, in 2011 and 2012. Um, so that'll, that'll come around and other, other groups, you know, are, are pretty well dug in as you start to think through the rest of the organization that has yet to embrace agile ways of working. Um, you know, marketing, human resources, groups like that. I think it's starting to make sense with them, but it's not a, the battle's not won yet. And so um, there's still more work to do on that side. So in software world, 
I think it's a foregone conclusion if you're not doing agile and, and you're still doing waterfall, you're going the way of the dodo bird. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the org, it's not quite there yet. There's still some uh, some battles to be won on there. And I think business agility is what's really going to unlock the uh, the key benefits that organizations want to do agile for anyway. Getting the the real cycle time right now, the bottlenecks not often in software. It's other processes around that. So you've got to get a full view of the value stream and figure out where those bottlenecks are so you can optimize it. Great point. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, again, it's, it, it's kind of looking at everything as a, as a process, right? Inputs, you know, some level of process or refinement and then an output of some sort. And if you can optimize that and reduce the friction, then, you know, that gives you a little bit uh, better agility, as you said, in the, in the business side. Absolutely, yep. Um, so let me ask you this. I know we're living in this bizarre 2020 world and COVID. Um, how is, how is this shutdown, um, affected what you do as a chief, uh, methodologist? You know, it's not, it's not affected my job that much. I, I think one negative, it's been harder to sell work because I think there's something like looking across at somebody's eye and being able to stand at a whiteboard and, and really empathize with where they're at and explain how you can help them get out of that problem. There's something about being there in person that helps, uh, helps close that work. I, I also think there's been a little bit of hard time selling new work just because budgets are so tight. Um, yeah. And so a lot, of, a lot of companies are really struggling. They're not wanting to do a lot of big investments right now. So my, my pipeline has slowed down a little bit, but with the companies that I'm working with, the existing relationships, it really hasn't um, skipped a beat. I think if anything, we're probably more productive uh, working together in a remote fashion. Um, so that's, it's kind of interesting where I've seen pipeline stuff dry up, but as things come in, um, I can execute it just as efficiently and actually save them a lot of money because we're not having to pay airplane costs and all that kind of thing. Yeah. I think companies are kind of realizing that certainly in software business, if you've ever dealt with offshore teams, you're already dealing with remote workers. And so you're having to sort of figure out, you know, how do you get that collaboration and that co-location feel uh, using some tools and, um, you know, bridging that, that physical distance and still being able to operate as a team and have that communication channel. So, so yeah, I think we are definitely better positioned than say other companies are for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I I do think the work world is going to be different. There will be more of a remote component. I am, I'm anxious to kind of see just the psychological changes that'll need to be part of that is uh, there's got to be some way to have more water cooler conversations and things like that. Um, with coworkers to build some of that community. That's something I don't think we've figured out yet as a uh, uh, collective. Um, I think there's more work to do on that one. But, uh, but yeah, overall, as far as productivity goes, man, there's some, some great tools out there that are supporting remote work and able to make that flow fairly seamlessly. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we are all humans and we do enjoy face-to-face interaction. And I think there will be some hybrid it probably won't be like the the consultant model you described earlier where you're on the road four days a week, every week is probably not going to come back in a widespread fashion. But I think from a sales cycle or from building those relationships and building that team going through that, you know, Tucker model of, you know, (laughs) form storm norm, you're going to have to have some face to face as much as possible. Um, But I think, you know, you could probably do that on the front end and then sort of taper off and then be able to work in a remote fashion like what we're doing now. And then you have maybe, maybe you get together at the end as you sort of, you know, close out the project or you launch something um, to kind of get the team back together. But yeah, I don't think we're going to get back to that road warrior phase that, uh, that we used to be up. I hope not. That'd be great to leave that in the past. That's, I love consulting. I hate travel all the time. You know, occasional travel is great, but all the travel all the time is not no good. So I'm hoping this kind of cracks the door open for some more remote stuff to facilitate that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So yeah, um, last question, I'll let you run. Um, But if you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself? Man, that's a tough one. I I think the advice I'd give myself in college would be co-op, you know, work at work at companies, do internships, something like that. I always took the path of least, least resistance. And so working at the, the neighborhood bike shop was pretty easy. I had a passion for it and it saved me money on parts. So I, I never even went to, to try to co-op, you know, I just always had in my head, it'd be too hard to, to land a job and I didn't want to deal with the rejection, whatever. So if I could go back, I'd encourage myself to, to co-op, get some work experience. It probably would have helped me arrive at a, at a good career quicker. Um, and then thoughts just around that first 
uh, job or every job, I, I think I just tell myself not to worry that much. So often when, when you're in your 20s or your 30s, you're thinking through like, you know, man, I've got to be successful tomorrow or I've got to figure, figure out my life tomorrow or sometime really soon. What am I doing in my life? And, you know, I think that's just a story that unfolds over time. And for me personally, there's been a lot of different phases, different ways I've got income, owning my own business, being an employee. Both of those have pros and cons, um, different industries. I've worked in a variety of different industries and each of those has pros and cons. And so I, I suspect that'll be similar to my journey going forward and just exploring new things. So feeling like you have to lock in early and all that kind of stuff, putting all that pressure, I don't think it's uh, helpful. Now, certainly you want to have a direction and be marching towards something, but, but think of it like learning cycles. You're, you're going to go in there, have an experience, learn from it, and, um, and then go from there. And then the other thing, I, I think it's always a propensity to um, put your family second and your workforce first, especially as you're trying to build a, build a business or build a brand within a business. Um, but man, your family is going to be what's there through the hard times. When I was 39, I had a heart attack and I was thinking, wow, man, I've got my own business. Things are going good. But what if I lost it all day? Like, what if I don't come out of the ER? What, what's the benefit of that? So yeah. I think I had my midlife crisis early because of that, which was helpful. But that, <laughs> that's kept me honest uh, much more than I would have been had I, had I not had that experience. And yeah. That's key. Yeah, that, I didn't realize that, but that's it's definitely an eye opener where you sort of take assessment of your life and what you've done, where you've been, and you know where you're going, and sort of you start thinking about your legacy and all that. And you're right; I mean, I think it's easy to sort of get distracted. And distracts not the right word, but you know, you want to do well and you want to focus on things. And if you're doing something that you know is interesting, you know, you can definitely pour your life into it and not realize that maybe you haven't really balanced yourself out, and you may not realize it when you're younger, but you know, as you get older, or certainly if you've got a family, small kids, you know, they don't understand, well, dad's got a cool job. And he's, you know, he likes to go and help people. He's like, why isn't he here to, you know, cook dinner with me or whatever the case is, you know, and I think that's, you don't get those years back. So you definitely really need to um, just kind of balance yourself out a little bit, because it's, it can be a problem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Well, cool, man. This has been a lot of fun. I, I appreciate the insight. Um, you've had a really interesting career. And there, I learned some stuff tonight, too, that, you know, we've known each other for a while, but I didn't know some of the things about how you got started into the agile world and, you know, some of the experiences that you had. So thanks for sharing those. I know that will resonate with a lot of the listeners. Well, cool. Yeah, I, I love uh, being a part of it. Paul, thanks for what you're doing here. What a, what a cool thing, man. I wish I had some of these stories to listen to when I was younger. You and me both, man, just having that experience because uh, it sounds like we both struggled a little bit, you know, in, in school and trying to figure what our path looks like. And if we had some, you know, some multiple, you know, folks kind of weighing in on what they're doing and giving you some advice, you know, I, I, I wouldn't have stressed so much about it. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good stories to hear. And, and I'm just glad to give back to, uh, to the folks to hear more about it. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. And thanks for the work you're putting in the fullness together. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.